God speaks his word to us today from Numbers, chapter 13. We have two different passages. First, Numbers 13, 17 through 20. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do you do, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land? It was a season for the first ripe grapes. And then from 25 through 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. This is the word of the Lord. I may have already shared with you, um, a son was talking to his mom, complaining, saying, well, I don't want to go to church. She said, why, you know, why not? Why don't you want to go to church? And I said, well, you know, I just don't want to go there. The, the, the people, they're not always nice to me and everything. Give me good, one good reason, Mom, why I ought to go. She said, well, I'll give you two. First of all, you're 45 years old. Uh, second, you're the pastor. Um, but I, I often say that Philippians 2.14 is the hardest verse in the Bible to obey. Anybody know that one right off without looking? Philippians 2.14, ring a bell. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Uh, depending on what translation you read. Grumbling or complaining. Grumbling or disputing. I, I, I genuinely believe that's the hardest verse in the Bible to obey. Um, and the book of Numbers talks about grumblers. In fact, when I first started my ministry here among you in January, I did a little four-part topical series, Finding Hope in God's Goodness. And one of them was from Numbers. It was from Numbers chapter 11. The people are complaining. They're complaining against Moses. In fact, it got so bad that Moses literally says to God, kill me now. If this is what it's going to be like, just kill me, kill me now. The people are complaining. Numbers chapter 11. We saw that in January. And then in chapter 12, his own family is complaining against him, um, um, Miriam and Aaron. And then we get to chapter 13, uh, that Dolores just read parts of that for us, in which the majority of the spies, they're grumbling and complaining. And now we come to chapter 14, 
in a message titled, Do Not Fear, and yet, what do we have? More grumbling and complaining. And so, let's, uh, let's read it. I'll read aloud. You can turn over your listening guide and see the first 10 verses from chapter 14. I'd urge you to read the whole chapter. We're just going to address the first 10 verses here in short order. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night uh, after they'd gotten the report from the spies. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us a land that that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for their bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. To all the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, make us attentive to your spirit. Uh, Help us in these few minutes together to concentrate on you and your word. Give us ears to hear. Increase our faith. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, Do not fear. If you go online and you do a little search for do not fear or fear not, you'll come across very quickly in your search results, you'll find a bunch of articles or sites or whatever that claim that it says 365 times in the Bible, do not fear, fear not. Uh, 365, one for every day of the year, isn't that cool? Well, yeah, I guess that is cool, except it's sort of trite and it's not necessarily accurate. Um, I did a little bit of study and research. It sure says it a lot, maybe over a hundred times, certainly dozens and dozens of times. The Lord says to us, says to his original listeners, and it still applies for us today, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Dozens and dozens of times. Why Christians like to do this stuff about like the 365, isn't that cool, isn't that neat? It's kind of... I don't know why Christians like to do that stuff. Sometimes it's junk. Remember what Abraham Lincoln said, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. Um, But anyway, the context of our story here this morning is the debate about entering the promised land. So Dolores already read for us chapter 13. They're sent out to check out the land and check out the people. They're, 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 They're... encamped on the plains of Moab, um, the wilderness of Paran. They're, they're poised to, to go in 
and to take possession of the promised land that God has promised for them. I wish we could go more into the background in history, but that's all we can do right now. There, so the Lord, through, his, through the divinely appointed leader, Moses, sends 12 spies, right, into the land, chapter 13, one from each of the 12 tribes, and they're to check out the land and the people. The land, is it good or is it bad? Uh, is it rich or is it poor? Are there trees? And, and uh, they bring back some of the fruit. In fact, two guys have to hold a pole because the cluster of grapes is so huge that they, that they end up bringing back as an artifact, as some of the physical evidence of how good the land is. And they're asked to check out the people. Are they strong or weak? Are they um, few or are they many? Are they uh, encamped or are they in strongholds? You know, what, what's the situation? So that's the original meaning and context, and we always have to look at that when we look at Scripture. And so there's this debate about the promised land. The description of the land is that it's exceedingly good. We've already seen that in verses 7 and 8 in our chapter, Numbers 14. Uh, so your next bullet point is about the obstacles. There are obstacles in the land. There are strong people in fortified cities. Strong people in fortified cities. Now, if you read some of these accounts, a little more of the surrounding material, you realize that the, the majority report of the unbelieving spies, they saw the obstacles, but they sort of exaggerated them. Specifically in, in our chapter, chapter 14, they say the land devours its inhabitants. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. And, and somewhere they say that um, the walled cities, the fortified cities, their walls reached up to heaven. Well, that's an exaggeration. And the people were giants and so we were like grasshoppers in their sight and became as grasshoppers in our own sight. Um, there's a proverb that says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. So these guys, 10 of them anyway, were grasshoppers, basically. By the way, a little quick aside, I love to recommend books. I don't know if anybody reads my book recommendations, but there's a book called The Grasshopper Myth by Carl Vaders, K-A-R-L, Vaders, V-A-T-E-R-S. It's about the church. It's about churches that have an inferiority complex because how come we're not big like the megachurch? You ought to check it out. Elders, you ought to look at that one. The Grasshopper Myth by Carl Vaders. So anyway, there are obstacles. Strong people, fortified cities, no doubt. Why did God have them see this? If they had gone into the land and all they found was a bunch of Smurfs camped out on Little Mermaid sleeping bags. What do you think would have been their reaction? We got this. Yeah, we, we, we can handle this. This is no challenge whatsoever. The Lord wanted them to see the obstacles. Why? So that they would trust him. Right? That's kind of the punchline here. And so the minority report, there's two of the guys who are faithful. We know their names. You name your kids after them. I, we don't have the faithless spies' names. But uh, Caleb and Joshua, they were the faithful ones. In, in chapter 13, Caleb says, uh, we are well able to overcome it. He says, we can do it. In, in our chapter here in verse 9, Joshua chimes in with Caleb and says, do not rebel. Do not fear. Two times it says it in the passage. Do not fear we'll eat these guys for lunch, not because 
their Smurfs on sleeping bags, but because the Lord is with us. That's what makes the difference. It's the presence of God in their midst. And so all these dozens of times in the Bible that we're told, fear not, do not fear, it's because of the presence of our God. So the minority report, they say, we can do it. But the people, what is their response? It's, it's unbelief. They are swayed by the majority report of the grasshopper spies who are scared to death. They see the obstacles and they say, we can't do it. And, and they, they, they pine away. They say, we, I wish we would have died in Egypt. What, what is Egypt? Slavery. They were slaves for 400 years. And they say, hey, this is a good idea. Let's go back there. Let's get rid of Moses and appoint our own leader. And in rejecting Moses, their divinely appointed leader, what are they doing? They're rejecting God. They're rejecting the Lord. And they say, gee, if you know, we could have died in Egypt, that would have been better. We could, go, we could have died in the wilderness. Let's go back. We'd rather be enslaved than trust the Lord because it's scary, the unknown. And there are obstacles, no doubt. The land is good, everyone agrees. There are obstacles, everyone agrees. The point of disagreement is whether they should take action in trust in the Lord or not. And so they say, let's stone them. You know, it's, uh, it's easy in the church today to blame the pastor. Uh, I won't go very far. You're, you're getting ready to call a new pastor, but um, I won't go very far with this analogy. But I, I pastored a church near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a dozen years. And during that time, I saw the rise and the fall of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. I'm a Red Sox fan, but um, sorry, Cubs fans. But... Uh, I saw the rise and fall of the Phillies' little, I don't know about dynasty, but they called a manager, Charlie Manuel. If you're a baseball fan, this might be interesting to you. If not, just listen. Uh, listening's polite. But Charlie, Charlie is a lifelong baseball man, decades in baseball. He knows baseball. But he's originally from the South, and so he talks like even more Southern than y'all think I talk. Um, and so when he got there in Philadelphia, I saw the press. They literally called him an idiot. They said, this guy's a country bumpkin. He can't even string a sentence together. And then guess what? The team started winning. And then they started beating the dread Mets. And then they got, you know, they got Roy Halladay and Chase Utley and Ryan Howard, and they won a World Series. And you know what they said? Charlie Manuel's a genius. And, th and then what happened? Then those guys, those key players, started getting older and started getting injured, and they kind of went downhill. And they didn't exactly run Charlie Manuel out of town on a rail, but they got, they got rid of him. So he went from being an idiot to a genius to run out of town. Because in baseball, there's an aphorism that it's easier to fire a manager than 25 players. You know, Keep that in mind. And, and so if we were to continue on in the chapter, we're not going to, but if we were going to continue on, you'll find as you read all of Numbers 14 that the Lord is prepared to judge these people and to start over with Moses. These are the descendants of the great patriarch, the father Abraham. And, and the Lord is so disgusted with what? With their unbelief. He says, I'm going to wipe these folks out. We'll start over again with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes. And you ought to look at that in Numbers 14, how Moses intercedes. He, he 
claims God's promises and quotes God back to himself in a good way. He says, Lord, but what about your promises? What about you being slow to anger? What about your steadfast love, your chesed, your covenant love for your people? What about your promises? And the Lord relents. And and we have a better mediator, somebody who goes and, and, and pleads our case. His name is Jesus, right? And so in Numbers 14, Moses is a type of Christ as he intercedes for the people. Don't let the judgment fall on them because of your character, your great name, your promises. And our great Savior did that for you and for me. He drank the cup of God's wrath. The penalty for our sins fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed, and we're spared, and we're recipients of God's mercy and God's grace. So I'm going to comment about these Old and New Testament elaborations. We're not going to look them up. But this is a, um, by the way, with, with today here and what we did with our work in Ephesians for 12 weeks, you have hopefully been exposed to and learned two ways to read Scripture for yourself, to prepare lessons when you teach the Scripture to your kids or to other women in the church or to a Bible study or whatever you're doing in your teaching. Remember head, heart, hand? To be, to know, to do? You can read the scriptures as we did in Ephesians and ask yourself these question, questions. Lord, as I'm reading scripture here, what did you want your original hearers to know, to be, and to do? And what do you want me to know, to be, and to do? Head, heart, hand. Well, here, this is a slightly different rubric. Not that different, actually, but anyway. Um, where else do we see this stuff about do not fear in the Bible? Well, we see in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament. The Old Testament, Psalm 118, you, you, you ought to spend a few minutes this week looking up some of these passages. In Psalm 118, it talks about the Lord being on my side, so I'll not fear. In Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 41, part of what it says is, Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed for... We're going to sing that song in a minute, I think. Um, how firm a foundation. In Jeremiah 17, it talks about the blessings of the one who trusts the Lord and does not fear and is not anxious. Good reminders for you and for me. In the New Testament, uh, the Matthew 1 passage, it's the angel talking to Joseph, right? Joseph is crestfallen. He's getting ready to marry Mary, and he finds out she's pregnant, and he knows it's not him. He can only conclude it must be some other guy. And so he's going to divorce her, put her away quietly, right? So something worse doesn't happen to her. And what happens? The angel, the messenger of the Lord comes and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Jesus has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you'll call his name Jesus because he's going to, Jesus means Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It means salvation. It means that he's going to be the Savior He's going to save his people from their sins. And then it goes on. I only listed verses 20 and 21 there. But in 23, it talks about how he's also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The presence of God makes all the difference. And that's why we do not fear. Uh, Matthew 10 passage is on the back there uh, of your listening guide. So, Those are the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid of people, but have reverence and awe for God instead. Um, At Easter, we talked about two kinds of fear. 
slavish fear versus filial fear. Slavish fear shrinks back. It fears punishment. But if you're in Christ, you don't need to fear God in that way. Rather, you have filial fear. Filial meaning of a son. Adopted sons and daughters of God Most High. We don't fear God because the punishment fell on Christ. We reverence God. We respect Him. We're in awe of Him at His grace and mercy. The Hebrews 13 passage, part of what it says is God will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we're not afraid. What can man do to us? Quoting from a couple of Psalms. I am going to read one passage from Hebrews, not listed. It's only a paragraph. Hebrews 4, 1 through 3. Because uh, this passage that we're looking at, Numbers 14, which I've been studying for a long time and still learning about, um, it's termed elsewhere in the scriptures, the rebellion. This is a turning point in the history of the nation of Israel because they failed to believe God and they failed to obey him. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, really the whole chapter talks about it. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, in a good way, fear God with reverence and awe. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. Good news? That's the gospel. That's the message of salvation in Jesus. Good news came to us just as to them. Who's the them? These people in numbers that didn't go up and go into the promised land. Um, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what you and I need to do When we hear the good news of Jesus, it needs to be united with faith in our hearts. Other than that, it does us no good if you don't believe. For we who have believed enter that rest. If you want to enter into God's rest, you need to believe God's word and the belief that we have, even the faith that we have, is a gift from God for he apportions unto each man a measure of faith. Application steps. All right, so we'll wrap it up here. I've got four application steps for you. This is how I have learned to deal with my fears, and I'm going to give you two of my own examples. Uh, Let me just list points one through four and then walk through the examples very quickly. First is name your fear before the Lord. Name it. Talk to God. Say it out loud. Name your fear before the Lord. Second, follow that fear to its logical conclusion. I'll come back to that. Third, ask yourselves questions about that worst-case scenario. And I'm going to do that in a moment. Uh, and, And then fourth, affirm the fact that God is in control. And believe the gospel. So name your fear before the Lord. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give you two examples, and right quick. Uh, First is, you know, my daughter Jenna, um, she was supposed to come and spend quite a lot of time with me this year, uh, with you guys. And it hasn't worked out that way because of her eyesight um, and the health of her eyes. Bottom line is she's uh, having a little procedure on Wednesday, and then she probably has to have a repeat of this cornea transplant that she had last September. Her vision is just not good. Um, So what is my fear? Uh, I'll name my fear before the Lord. I am afraid that Jenna will go completely blind that the little bit of functional vision that she has, that she'll lose it completely and name my fear before the Lord. Uh, follow that fear to its logical conclusion. Well, if, she, if things keep going downhill, 
she'll be blind. She won't be able to, she can hardly say a thing right now. She won't be able to say anything. That's the logical conclusion. Well, then I need to ask myself some questions about that worst case scenario. What, what this does is it makes the big scary, the thing that scares you so much. If you work through this process, I think that I've learned through experience and in God's word, it makes the big scary not so scary. So I ask myself some questions. So if Jenna went completely blind, what would that mean? Worst case scenario. Well, she'd still be a human being. She'd still be a person of dignity and worth and value. And she'd still be my daughter. And she'd still be tenacious. And she's already learning Braille in case the worst case scenario happens. And you know, we'd put some things in place. And other people are, are completely blind, right? Worst case scenario. Uh, and then I remind myself of God's promises. You know what? Every once in a while, Jenna will say something like, I can't wait until we're on the new earth forever with the Lord and I get my glorified body and I have perfect vision. And she reminds me of the promises of God. You remind yourself that God is in control and believe the gospel. Uh, another concrete example, and I share my examples with you because I know my examples. I don't know yours. But what's your big scary? Name it before God. So I'm done here in two weeks, and I'll be unemployed. Um, so uh, what, what's a big scary? I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what my income is going to be next month. Um, I'm not sure what job I'm going to have or you know, how I'm going to serve in the church or otherwise and have an income. Follow that through to its logical conclusion. Well, my income is maybe going to take a big dip, you know, next month. So, what's the worst case scenario? You know, I'm 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 afraid. I'm afraid, Lord. I'm I'm afraid we might lose our home, or something. Um, And you talk about it with the Lord, and then you remind yourself of God's promises, and you recount His past faithfulness in your life. Tom, haven't you always had somewhere to live? You know, it. First of all, your wife has a job. Second of all, you're raising a little money for what you're doing in West Africa, you know, a little, little part-time income there or whatever. Um, but don't you think that God could provide something? Don't you think some opportunity will come up? And you know what? Worst case scenario, if you guys had to sell your house, wouldn't God give you another house or apartment or somewhere to live? Hasn't he always? Would it really be the end of the world? I mean, we're working like crazy not to have Jenna go blind. I'm seeking the Lord and praying and checking into other opportunities to have a job, to have an income. I hope this makes sense to you, to, to, to work through your big scariest in the presence of God. And when you do this, I think you'll find, like me, it's not so scary after all. And God is still on the throne, and he is still good, and he is faithful. And we believe the gospel. Also back in January, in that little uh, series I did on finding hope in God's goodness, we talked about the Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest Christian that ever lived. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that he despaired even of life itself. And then he says, but that was to cause us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, let's believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray for our people. We pray for employment, for those who need employment. We pray for your healing touch, for those who are sick and laid aside. We pray for their faith.
that it may not fail, even if they don't receive their answer to prayer in their desired fashion on their desired timetable. We pray that they would continue to cling to you and rely on you and your promises, for they're all yes and amen. Amen.